0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: This year marks the twentieth anniversary of the september eleventh, two thousand and one terrorist attacks on the United States. The attacks and the U.S. response to them have had profound consequences for American domestic and foreign policy, as well as for international relations and global security. JMU Civic and JMU X Labs have partnered to gather and share stories of James Madison University alumni. Who have served and continue to serve in the military. If you have a story to contribute for our 9-11-at-20 series, please email civic at jmu.edu. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley. And I'm Logan Ziegler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. I'm Jacqueline Doburn, Communication Specialist here at JMU Civic.
2: This is Abe Goldberg. Director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science.
1: In this episode of our mini-series on 9-11 at 20, we talk with Major Michael Benner, who was originally from Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania, and majored in public administration at James Madison University, where he commissioned through the ROTC as a branch-detailed military intelligence officer. As you will hear in this episode, Major Benner had five deployments to both Iraq and Afghanistan. He has completed his military intelligence captain's career course and served as the analytical control element during deployment to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2009. He applied and was accepted into the Army Intelligence Developmental Program in the spring of 2014. Upon completing the year-long in-depth study of joint and national collection capabilities and Command and General Staff College at Belvoir, Major Benner began his utilization tour with the 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum, New York. Once again, Major Benner deployed to Operation Enduring Freedom in 2016 under the 10th Mountain Division as the division collection manager. In 2017, Major Benner continued his career with the 10th Mountain Division, transitioning to Division Artillery Brigade. He supported Operation Inherent Resolve in this capacity and a special staff, to the CJFLCC initiatives group to the CJFLCC commander upon his return from Iraq in the summer of 2018 major benner was selected to work as the G2 for the newly formed long range precision fires cross functional team under army's future command at fort sill oklahoma we hope you enjoy learning from major benner's experiences and invite your thoughts and comments you can connect with us on twitter and facebook at jmu civic and on Instagram, at JMU Vote. On September 11, 2001, Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four commercial airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. A fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Close to 3,000 people died in the attacks. Although Afghanistan was the base for Al-Qaeda, none of the 19 hijackers were Afghan nationals. Mohammed Atta, an Egyptian, led the group, and 15 of the hijackers originated from Saudi Arabia. In response to the attacks, then-President George W. Bush vowed to win the war against terrorism. On September 18, 2001, President George W. Bush signed into law a joint resolution authorizing the use of force against those responsible for attacking the United States on September 11. Subsequently, the Bush administration utilized that joint resolution as a legal rationale for its decision to take sweeping measures to combat terrorism, from invading Afghanistan to wiretapping U.S. citizens without a court order to standing up the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Some two decades after the U.S.-led forces toppled the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, in what led to the United States' longest war, the Taliban insurgency persists. According to the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, at least 800,000 people have been killed by direct war violence in the U.S. post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan. Thousands of United States service members have died in combat, as have thousands of civilian contractors. Many have died later on from injuries and illnesses sustained in the war zones. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and contractors have been wounded and are living with disabilities and war-related illnesses. Allied security forces have also suffered significant casualties, as have forces from the opposition. However, the vast majority of people killed in the fighting since 2001 have been the more than 310,000 civilians. In addition, the U.S. post-9-11 wars have forcibly displaced at least 37 million people in and from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. This number exceeds the total displaced by every war since 1900, except for World War II. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military. And the second question actually came from Nick Swain, but um, did you realize what you were getting into when you joined ROTC at JMU?
0: So I'll answer Nick's question first. No. I looked at ROTC and joining the Army for two reasons. One, uh, it was a way to pay for college. And so my junior and senior year, that's what I was kind of focused on is how can I how can I pay uh, to go to a, a good competitive university and not have to pay all of that money or take out a bunch of loans? So that was kind of the, the impetus of that. And I, we have a family history of, of military service through my grandfathers and my, uh, my older brother. So it seemed like a logical choice. And it was something that I also gravitated towards. I like the idea of leadership and sort of the role that an officer plays within some of those smaller organizations, platoon leader, company commander, battalion commander. And so um, I thought since I had no great passion for one particular discipline, this was a way to uh, sort of scratch that leadership itch. uh, And then I can figure out the discipline on my way.
1: With the 20th anniversary of September 11th coming up, we were wondering where you were on September 11th, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you?
0: Well, that was my freshman year of college, and so I was on the quad at the time, and I was running for student body president for my year group. Once we started getting word that um, things were happening in New York, I believe is what is we saw this, the second tower fall. I went back to my dorm. It was Dean Hall. I think it's been renamed since, but at least that's where I was and where my girlfriend, actually now wife, also lived. And anyway, uh, I have family in New York City. And so I was concerned for them. Obviously, I didn't try to call them. I called my parents instead. And the cell phone lines were, were certainly clogged. Yeah, I just kind of stopped doing what I was doing and just started watching and trying to figure out what was going on and trying to reach out to people to see, to see what they were doing, uh, mostly family at the time.
2: Mike, can you share your experiences serving in the global war on terror, the global overseas contingency operations in ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan? And I'm curious how those experiences have impacted you as an individual.
0: It's pretty much shaped my professional career, namely. Uh, I would say it's also affected me personally because it's given me a a perspective on on life and the way the world works that I don't know I would have received if not uh, seeing some of these places firsthand. I've deployed five times, three times to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan. Both are very different. And I've done that since 2006 and probably about every other year to every two to three years. So my last deployment was to Iraq in 2018. And every time I go back to one of these places, it does it changes, at least from, you know, my lens, sometimes good, sometimes bad. So over basically a little over a decade worth of of doing this, I I think it gives me a an interesting perspective on how these type of operations work or don't work and what it really means to participate in a long, protracted type of, you know, combat engagement we can call it a war on terror. I would say it was more of a movement on terror. And then we had these, these long wars, which we participated in where literally generations of our families and generations of our adversaries uh, all participated. I mean, the kids that um, were probably, you know, kicking around soccer balls in 2006 might've been fighters in 2018.
2: Well, I am curious, you mentioned a, um, kind of an interest in leadership, right? Which brought you into this. Um, Can you speak to how it changed your approach to leadership from having five different deployments in one way or another?
0: It made me value trust a lot more. My third, yeah, third deployment was to Afghanistan. It was also my, my first experience in Afghanistan. I was a company commander at the time. And I had a company of 60 soldiers. They were human intelligence collectors, interrogators and low level voice intelligence uh, interceptors. So they basically intercept radio communications and that sort of thing. Right. Very tactical ground level intelligence. You get attached to infantry or armor units, maneuver people, uh, and you go out on missions with them and you conduct your operations. Uh, I also worked um, two different detention facilities on top of that. So, what that really means to your question is that I had to develop small teams that I could trust because I was basically sending out three to seven man teams over 14 different out stations over three different provinces in Afghanistan and trusting other company commanders and platoon leaders to safeguard them. And I'm also trusting that my soldiers are going to be able to get there and do their job. And I'm only going to maybe see them once if that. In the nine months that we were going to be there, uh, by the time I could get to all of these places, uh, and so we had to develop a lot of trust within the team to be able to do these things. Mind you, this was also a mixed gender, so I had males and females, and I was sending males or uh, females to all male FOBs and trying to convince them to uh, that that was going to be okay, and a bunch of other stuff. And and so if if we did not focus on trying to develop uh, strong teams and trust within that, that core leadership element, which are like E6s and E5s. So think of your 23 to 26-year-old. Uh, and myself, I was about 29 at the time, 30 at the time. That's that's a tall order. You know, We didn't have a lot of time to do it. We tried some very conventional ways of doing it. We tried some unconventional ways of doing that as well. But uh, I couldn't imagine us uh, getting through that if we hadn't focused on that, as importantly as focusing on the actual job we're there to do.
1: You mentioned, you know, across your five deployments and and also seeing, you know, younger people who might have grown up to become fighters later on. I wonder if you could speak to some of the changes that you witnessed on the ground in terms of interacting with uh, indigenous peoples uh, in in Afghanistan and and Iraq and, and what changes you might have seen as operations continued over time
0: let's take Iraq first because they're two, they're two different peoples and they're two different places and they're two different problems or sets of problems. There's lots of problems. But Iraq, the, um, we got there in 2006, which was right before the surge, and we were basically a placeholder. So we were one of the glorious units that got extended to a 15-month tour. We were just south of Baghdad in a place called Adwaniya. Uh, or and Mamadiya. And that was a rift because the um, Shia had these things. Well, I'm sorry, the Sunnis had these things called Baghdad or belts, right? So areas around Baghdad that they were trying to seize and isolate. We didn't really understand that at the time because it hadn't, that strategy hadn't exactly been formalized to us. And as an executive officer for a cavalry squadron, I don't even know if I would have cared. That was a very kinetic. More active deployment, we'll say. We were sitting in between that rift between Sunnis and Shias, and I don't think we appreciated the time the significance of that till we got there. And about maybe six to eight months in, we started working that a little bit, and we started developing Shia um, resistance cells. And we actually brought people under the FOB, and we were training them to do security operations and and trying to get them, and basically using these the secretarian riffs uh, to our advantage, which is probably something we should have done in the beginning. You can make arguments saying we shouldn't play one side or the other, but um, go there and stay there for a while and tell me if that, if that strategy works out. So we picked the Shia because they were the ones that didn't kill us the most and um, they weren't Al-Qaeda. Uh, and so they were the lesser of, of two problems in those particular regions. Fast forward to 2018, Now you have the defeat of ISIS. Lots of things have happened in that decade. And now you have these Shia militias, maybe some of the same guys that we trained on our FOB, maybe not, who are now the threat and are now the destabilizing factors. So now the script is flipped. So you could ask yourself, did we do the right thing in the beginning? Did we not? I don't know. But um, it was a different environment. It was a different problem. It was a different set of enemies that were in prominence at the time. There were some small glimmers of good news like Baghdad Uh, when I was there. I used to have to travel there on logistics missions and um, it was all T-walled off. It looked like an absolute war zone, exactly what you'd see in the movies. And then when I went this last time, I was a staff writer for my general officer and we would take helicopters usually at night to go out and visit different places around Iraq. And Iraq actually had a amusement park with a operational Ferris wheel and it had hotels and it had open-air markets and they moved over 250,000 T-walls, those giant concrete 12-18 foot structures out of Baghdad since then. So that seemed like pretty significant progress. But they have this eminent, you always knew there was this eminent cloud of threat of these, these Shia militias and who backs those Shia militias was still a real problem. You had a rebuilding problem. So now, as, as my boss put it, and something we wrote a bunch of thought pieces on, again, staff writers, so we write stuff, was on the rebuilding of Mosul or contested territory of Kirkuk, which is a lot like the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Because you've got three generations of Sunnis, uh, Shias and Kurds, all who have basically rightful familial claims over the same piece of land. And oh, by the way, they've sold their oil rice twice over to whoever will buy it. So that is going to forever be a flashpoint driving through there on the pipes. You know, BP was written in English. Uh, so obviously they invested in you know you just you you notice little things like that the governor who is a criminal in all respect lived a lavish lifestyle but i don't think he's alive anymore so i don't know what got him so it, it was it was really to go from what was very clear cut and dry counterinsurgency conflict to this underlying looming threat of instability that was iraq it has great potential because of where it's located Because of its oil, because of its agriculture, actually. But with the corruption and all of these different sides still in healthy conflict with each other, no one can really take advantage of that long enough to to do something great long term. And that's going to be Iraq's problem probably for the next 100 years. Switching to Afghanistan, Afghanistan is kind of the opposite. We want to change Afghanistan. We change Afghanistan. Afghanistan doesn't change we tried to bring democracy to the precipice of civilization. And we struggle with democracy in our own country, sometimes ourselves, I think we're still pretty good at it. Um, But we certainly, you know, are not infallible. Uh, And here we are, literally, uh, in a place that still operates uh, in fiefdoms and cavemen. And I mean that the I mean that the most polite, a respectful way possible, because never in some of these remote villages did I ever see somebody poor or starving or malnourished. So they have to be doing something right. But they have no interest in changing. They haven't had any interest in changing since Alexander the Great, the British, the Russians, and us. And now the Taliban are going back in. And now they will be the bill payer um, for what basically is not even a country. It's a territory and it's people take advantage of those in power and try to get as much out of them and then they just wait we had some human source operators working for special forces and they went into a high mountain village that we had not gone in before and so they wanted to go check it out and in doing so uh, they were greeted very uh, coldly by the uh, village elders and and they asked why because we We've had no contact with this village before, and we were just, you know, was it word of mouth? Is it that it's Taliban-owned? What's the problem? They thought we were the Russians finally showing up. I mean, there are places, like, we have rednecks, right? Like, Virginia, you got rednecks. I'm from Pennsylvania. We got rednecks. Well, Afghanistan, they have rednecks, too. They're called waziris which you don't think could be possible, but it is. You know, these are people that they will spend their time lightening off rockets onto your fob. And then they'll come in and they'll have a sit down. And we used to do, you know, source operations, essentially like sitting down and having beatings and talking and trying to gain intelligence and sharing information ourselves. We had money to pay them if we needed to, that sort of thing. And they came in once because we were doing something called shake and baking the mountainside, which is a combination of HE and white phosphorus. We weren't really trying to attack people, but the white phosphorus was really good at destroying the rockets they would set up on timers because it would actually burn out the pieces and they would be significantly affected by doing this. Because what they would do is they'd set them up, they'd set them on various types of timers, and then they'd leave. And then those rockets would go off when the time was up and they generally hit in and around your fob. And this was a regular thing, probably every other day, in some cases. So they would do that. They came in, they wanted to um, talk to us about this shake and bake operation we were doing okay what what uh what seems to be the problem they're like well it's pine nut harvesting season and so we're going to have some people up on the on the mountainside so you know your enemies are going to be a little busy harvesting pine nuts so they're not really a threat to you so if you could stop shaking and baking the mountainside so we could collect pine nuts you know that'd be great and maybe things will be quiet here too asking for a friend and we were like you know we talked to the the base and we we're like, this is kind of where they're coming at it. It'll be at least two weeks, gives you some time to maybe do some other training without, you know, having to worry about it. And like, yeah, sure, whatever. So for two weeks, we didn't do that. And lo and behold, there wasn't a lot of violence on on reciprocating either. Uh, and it was what it was. Hmm. Afghanistan never changed. And my opinion is it never will. These This is just how they live. It's how they operate and they survive. And they're okay with that. So we can not be okay that we can accept what it is. To the normal Afghani, I don't think they're really gonna care. They're doing okay the way they live, which is not conducive to, I think, what maybe our our desire would be for them.
1: In June, President Joe Biden announced U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021. As we engage in this conversation in July 2021, Taliban fighters are taking or retaking districts in Afghanistan. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly?
0: Since we just ended in Afghanistan, um, I'll remind you: Afghanistan doesn't change; it will be fine. It might not be what you want it to be, and maybe some of the gains that were made in some of the more populated areas, like Kabul, with uh, human rights and those things. You'll probably be disappointed with the direction that that goes, uh, and there may be some Afghans that will be disappointed with that too. But that's it. It's just going to be what it is. Iraq more concerning because Iraq has tasted uh, Western civilization many times in their history, and a lot more frequently. And there's they are poised to do something good with it if they wanted to. It, it wouldn't look like a, a democracy or a parliamentary system the way maybe we would want it to be, but it would at least be functional. It would be a, a country that can govern itself and is someone we can negotiate with. But what threatens that is really the Iranian-backed militias and political members. They have had plenty of time over the last 20 years to take advantage of the security rift in, in Iraq. And it, it might be irreversible at this point. I'm not sure. But it's going to be very difficult to look at Iraq without the shadow of Iran right behind it uh, for the foreseeable future. And everybody always attacks Americans when we leave somewhere. Like that's just, it's a way to establish dominance. It's like peeing in the corner. You, know, you attack a couple things, you make some stuff blow up and then you get to write about it and show all your backers that, hey, you're big and strong. You're kicking our butts on the way out. So that's that's been the trend uh, anytime we shut down anything.
1: From your perspective, what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in response to the September 11th terrorist attacks for domestic and U.S. foreign policy?
0: That's a tough one. Um, I'm not going to speak to domestic, quite frankly, um, because we've been doing this now through four presidents. Two of them have been Democrat, two have been Republican. And I still wear the uniform, so I'm going to recuse myself from that one. I will say that uh, I think initially it help bring together a country that maybe was starting to rift apart a little bit. And that uh, togetherness was good. We made some, some great decisions based off of that. We made some poor decisions based off of that. But I think that, you know, as you continue to go down this road, 21 years later, I think all things, you know, pass. So I think maybe what what uh, togetherness we felt in the beginning against what we thought was a common enemy, the reality was it wasn't a common enemy. It was a series of enemy enemies and ideals in various different places, which were wholly different than each other. And I think we we got tired of it. I mean, our greatest strength as an army is the fact that we can stay somewhere for a really long period of time. It's not the guns. It's not the bombs. It's not you know, our awesome soldiers. It is The fact that when we show up somewhere, we can stay for as long as we want, and we've proven it time and time again, and there are very few countries out there that can do that. Russia tried in Syria, they're struggling hard, and that's just in their back door. But the toll that takes on interest, popularity, money, congressional budgets, it's that whole of nation approach, that's the part that still really struggles for this. I mean, my last few deployments was basically like going to a minimum security prison. Mm-hmm. I get called up, I go, I sit in a fob, I do work every now and again, I get out in general population, I get three square meals a day, I get a cot well, I was a bed, it's better than a cot. And then once my time was up, I get released back out into civilization again, back home. Um, and I would say the last two deployments specifically felt like you're just marking time.
1: You may have just answered our question, but what do you want the public to appreciate about the United States military response to the September 11, 2001 attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narrative?
0: I want them to appreciate the sacrifice the people that, that volunteer for those things. Mm-hmm. And it's not just service members. There were non-governmental organizations that were there. There was humanitarian aid that was there. There were local law enforcement, well, not lo- like U.S. law enforcement, which were volunteering as contractors to go over and do things like train police officers. Uh, same thing with like fire response and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it was there are a lot of people who volunteered their time and put themselves in harm's way to uh, to do this. And even back home, just things like blood drives, you know, because we needed that, that type of stuff. Uh, we need to appreciate because that's hard to do, particularly over long periods of time. Again, we we grow tired eventually. We're interested, it gets redirected elsewhere. The one thing I would challenge them to do though is to look harder at why we're doing these things, right? It's easy to say, well, the towers fell uh, and we need to go kick someone's ass. And we did, we did in two countries. Basically short order, we toppled two nations. Well, we toppled the nation of Iraq and then we occupied Afghanistan and no one could do anything about it. That's a pretty powerful statement. We eventually targeted and killed Osama bin Laden, which is something that we said we were going to do. But we need to look at the strategy. What are we really doing there? And that's the part where even though we can stay really long times and places, should we? What are we really trying to do there? Is it our job to do these things? Or can we look the world in the eye and go, we're here to kill this guy. And we're going to stop at nothing until we do it, to include taking over two countries. And then when we're done, we're going to leave, which is a tough thing to say to the world. But if that's what you want to do, then we need to be in agreement that that's what we're going to do and not hide behind, oh, we're going to build nations. We're going to bring democracy to places that don't have it. Stop. If you can, if that's what you really want to do, okay. But we can't can't go in half-assed because nation building isn't as easy as it was back in World War II, which is always what we fall upon. I mean, Germany was rebuilding itself before we ever showed up. So was Japan. So these countries are not like that. The rest of the world has not necessarily marched to the. those two pretty industrious peoples. And so they're they're bad examples, quite frankly. Even the South Koreans, I mean, their country was nothing but mud and rubble. We dropped more bombs in South Korea than we did in all of World War II, South and North Korea. So there's nothing left. And we helped rebuild them uh, in a lot of ways. I don't know if you, any of you have been there, but... Everything in the street signs in South Korea is subtitled in English because we paid for most of it in a lot of ways. And so those are all great success stories, but that doesn't mean it's all going to be that way. So if you're not in it for that long haul, you really got to question, why are we doing this? And I don't know if we always ask those right questions or if the American people focused on them because we love to focus on other things sometimes. And what that does is that means that, you know, a few years of many soldiers' lives were in minimum security prison in some Middle Eastern place Uh, means your taxpayer money was maybe misspent on something that you're not going to get what you thought out of it. So you got to ask yourself, is this a good investment? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not.
2: You mentioned um, sacrifice several times, and and as we know, democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed, and we want to thank you personally for the sacrifices that you have made while we recognize that the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving strengthening and reimagining our democracy
0: most of it doesn't have to do with the military at all most of the people who serve want to it's a family business in some cases, a lot of generations, it's uh, you know, it's like saying, well, my family, you know, I've got a long history of police officers or firefighters or teachers. I mean, we kind of fall into these things that we're familiar with. I mean, my kids are growing up, moving from base to base, um, and it's something they're familiar with. I don't know if they'll join the army or the military at all. I don't care if they do or don't. I think what I would ask most other people to do that are not in the service is find some other way to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And that can be a lot of different things. But I think we've become very myopic. I think we've become very self-centered. I've lived in places where neighbors don't know each other. And that's that to me is problematic. Right. So I think we need to do a better job of reaching out just within our own communities and fix those first and try to be a part of something good there it doesn't always have to be national. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't need to be a war. That's all big stuff, but there are soccer clubs that need coaches. There Mm -hmm. are, you know, people who need donations locally. There's always stuff to do. And I, if we focus more on that, I think we would find that those would all be more, more likely than not good investments for people to focus on. You know, this is just one way I am not of an opinion that, military service is any greater than other people's services and sacrifices it's just different and it's a sort of an isolated subset of what I would consider to be American service in general Mm -hmm. Um, we get to wear a funny uniform uh, and occasionally flying helicopters and jump out of perfectly good airplanes which I don't recommend but I wish they'd pay a lot less attention to me and a little bit more attention to their own backyard
2: Perhaps this goes full circle to your point earlier in this conversation about trust, and maybe it's about trust building in our own communities from the way in which we serve each other. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, We do thank you for your service, for joining us, and for the work that you're doing in your community and on behalf of this country. Thank you.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civic's communications specialist. Randy Bednikus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.